Hi, Barry Rosenzweig here. I'm in studio with Jay Edinger. He's a real estate agent with the Dyna Realty, and I've known Jay for many, many years. And we're going to talk real estate today. Welcome to the Barry Law Legal Podcast. Barry Rosenzweig has been an attorney for over 25 years and is nationally known as a visionary in his profession. In each episode, attorney Barry Rosenzweig interviews lawyers, real estate agents, lenders, and other professionals that bring popular legal-related topics into focus for his listeners. So get ready for an educational and exciting episode. Now, here's your host, Barry Rosenzweig. Well, welcome to today's show. I'm sitting here with Jay Edinger today, and he's a real estate agent, and Jay and I have known each other for many, many years. I don't know how long it's been, Jay. Do you remember? I would guess 15? Yeah, probably about 15, that. 16 years, probably yep, in that ballpark. Yep. And I want to hear from you a little bit about your background, um, how you got into real estate, a little bit where you're at with it. Um, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am a, a graduate of St. Paul Academy, which is just sitting right down the street from where we're sitting right now. Uh, and to be honest, you left high school kind of at a loss with what to do with my life. Uh, went to the University of Minnesota for a short while. Went to the University of St. Cloud, actually, St. Cloud State uh, prior to Minnesota. And then came out of college really kind of, to be honest, kind of lost. And went back to St. Paul Academy and coached uh, high school basketball and baseball there. And then worked in the family business for about seven years with my mom. My mom, probably my favorite person in the world, but very different personalities. And every... Uh, Every family dinner, every family outing became all about business instead of, about, instead of family. And there really weren't great boundaries that we had kind of laid down. So I decided to, that I wanted to go out and do something on my own. I was about 30 years old at that point. I heard the cliche over and over and over again, that's not what you know, it's who you know. And I had my, my St. Paul friends that I grew up with. I had uh, you know uh, people from, uh, from synagogue growing up Jewish in St. Paul that I grew up with that I knew. And I uh, joined a fraternity at the University of Minnesota and then my bartending friends. And so I had a really kind of wide range of social circles and decided to get into real estate knowing that uh, taking kind of taking that old cliche into mind that it's who you know and not what you know. And uh, it's it's paid off well for me over the years. So when you first got into real estate, sales, uh, we'll call it. I don't know if you call it sales exactly. <laughs> Consulting. Consulting, or? marketing. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um Tell me a little bit about how you how you become a real estate agent and and then maybe a little bit about the designation of realtor versus real estate agent. I think a lot of people kind of want to know sure. how that works. And so for me, you know, you know, being new to the business, for me it was all about culture. And when I got out of real estate school, you know, I I interviewed with four different brokers. I well, I should say two different brokers and four different offices. Basically went where I just felt it just felt like the right culture where you know it, it, I'll just say it was Edina Realty that I that hired me and where I'm still at um, where I still hang my hat is Edina talked about the customer experience and I was young and I was certainly dumb but I knew I knew well enough that if you take care of people uh, things all work out in the end and they didn't talk about numbers they didn't talk about commission dollars it was really all about the culture and the culture of helping people and so that's where i decided to hang my hat now I, at the time i went to the highland office because that was home i was living on grand avenue and it was nearby and it seemed uh, like the right fit about a year later i moved over to 50th in france where i still am uh, 19 years later and i had just a great you know for me it was it's the, the leadership i had a manager john smaby who's now the the national board of realtors president 
uh, who was one of my dearest friends and a mentor to me. And, uh, you know, moving over to 50th in France is probably the best decision I've ever made in my career and my adult life professionally. I know sometimes people hear the word real estate agent and realtor. Okay. Okay. It, it, Realtor is a certain designation, isn't it, versus just a real estate agent, or is everybody kind of a well, realtor? Well, I think there's it's a little gray there. I think most people, um, there are certain people that 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 take that very seriously. That realtor designation. Mm-hmm. I think this new generation of younger agents. Uh, I don't think that that rings true as much as it used to. I think the younger agents, the millennials, uh, are are fine with the designation of real estate agent. Um, I, I, that's all I can tell you from my personal experience. I don't really, uh, I, I can't say I've experienced hearing, uh, a major difference between the two. Do, do you get any kind of a salary or payment where you work against it and get paid through the commissions sure. later? I mean, how does the, the so basic- I think most people, and I, and I can't, once again, everyone's got a different experience for me. No, there was no, I, mean, you were, I was on my own. I mean, it was, it was nine months before I sold my first house and I was spending money and writing checks, and I certainly wasn't receiving them. But once you once you have your first sale, you know, hopefully things, your confidence uh, goes up, your your experience level certainly goes up, and things just seem to snowball for people after that first kind of get over that first hump. But no, there was there was no salary. You get office space though, or do you get some kind of marketing help, or do you you know what what part of it, initially? What does the broker do? You, you generally pay for that. You pay for you, yourself. You, you do. You okay. uh, generally, you know, right now I, I don't take an office space. I office out of my house. Uh, the office is there for me to use. My assistant is there probably three to four times a week. But if I were to take an office space, then my my arrangement with Edina Realty would be different, where I would be paying a higher fee to them. Um, and that could work out in a number of different ways, whether it comes out of commission dollars or it's a set fee. Uh, but I haven't taken an I haven't had an office uh, personally I think in about eight years, I've just officed out of the house just to avoid that fee. And, and I'm just more comfortable because here's the thing. Real estate office is great. It's a great source of information. People are sharing information. And that's the one thing I love about the company I'm with is people play really well in the sandbox together. We share information. If, if, if I know someone in the office is looking for a certain property in a certain part of town, and I hear about it. I share that information immediately. Uh, and what goes around comes around. But at the same time, when you go to the office, it can tend to be a little bit of a social place and uh, I don't get as much done. And you uh, don't make money sitting in the office. Exactly. You have to be out showing houses exactly. and meeting with people and helping e- them with Exactly. And, and there, listen, there are those agents that seem to be in the office a lot. Let's just say that. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. You, as you said, you have a, a network of people you've developed over the years, which is, I'm sure, very helpful and they trust you and they like you. And Sure hope so. So. <laughs> so did you reach out to those people initially and and and, and how, do you, how do you generate some of your that's, that's a great question. So for, you know, listen, I got in the business in 1999. Uh, I still had an AOL email address and was, you know, I can remember the, the dial-up sound connecting to AOL every day. The technology has changed the industry. Uh, it's amazing what, what technology has done for this industry. When I when I got in the business, and I can only imagine what was what how things were done before I got in the business, but when I got in the business, if, you know, there was new software that, you know, at the time was cutting edge, but I used to have to fax listings to my clients. There, you couldn't send email attachments. Email was was uh, prevalent. I mean, e- email existed, but it wasn't as easy as sending a PDF now uh, as it is was it back then. It was just it was impossible to do, and the technology wasn't integrated with the MLS, where you could email from the MLS. There was a lot of copy pasting going on. 
There was a lot of, um, like I said, I literally using the fax machine. So getting my name out there, like I said, technology's changed things. I literally was, I very, I've always been very involved in philanthropic uh, activities. And the easiest way for me to promote myself and do it really subtly was to basically just have a signature on an email. When I'd email people about a charity event that I was involved in, and at the bottom it would say, you know, Jay Edinger, Diner Realty. And I can't tell you how much business I got off that simple signature but that's literally kind of what propelled my career, I think, is just being involved in the community and reminding people in a subtle way of what I was doing. As you build up clients over the years, it starts to become a higher percentage of referrals. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and, and then, listen, you know, if you do a good job for people and, and you leave a, leave a mark on, on their lives, because you're pretty, listen, when you're dealing with buyers and sellers, you become part of their family. You're literally with them and talking to them multiple times a day. You know, I always make the joke that, you know, if I sell 50 properties a year, I feel like I got dumped 50 times a year as well because you're with someone all the time and all of a sudden it's just over. Right. And and it's that the keeping in touch part is the part that can be real challenging because you want to keep in touch with them, A, for future referrals, but B, just because you've established that relationship. And it's a relationship business. And, and you know, I always take relationships, I take relationships over any amount of business just because I enjoy people. And you, you become a pretty intimate part of their lives. And you've spent a lot of time with them. You learn about them, you learn about their families. And as they say, it's the biggest purchase in your lifetime for, for most people. Yeah. And I'm very sensitive and uh, to that. And very sensitive to that that transaction is much bigger than any commission will ever be to any agent. The, how it affects their lives and their families' lives uh, is much more impactful than a commission will ever be for a real, real estate agent. So it is, it's a huge process. Uh, it's very time consuming. It can be very, very emotional, as I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to be in the middle of that and kind of helping people wade their way through the waters um, is a big responsibility and something that most agents, I think, take pretty seriously. And I'm sure it's really a positive experience for the most part. I mean, some of the transactional things can get a little bit emotional, but it's really a positive experience because you're getting somebody into some a home that they're going to spend a lot of time on, potentially grow their family in, and sometimes they're in there for their lifetime. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the, you know, I will tell you, I'm blessed that after 20 years of being in this business, I can pick and choose a little bit if I want to work with someone or not. I've had a couple instances where I've met with people and I just didn't get a good feeling from them. And it it wouldn't matter to me if it's a, a small little condo somewhere in town or if it's a million-dollar mansion. I, it doesn't matter to me. If, if, if you're not going to enjoy that experience and they're not going to enjoy you, um, it, at this point in my career, I just it's not something I want to take on. And as an attorney, I run into the same thing with clients. Yeah. So there are many clients I won't even let hire me because sure. I have to have that same exact I can imagine. relationship with them, same as yes. you would. Well, and I understand that completely. And especially because it's so emotional. Because it's so emotional, I would not want to be in the middle of something with, with someone that I don't think I'm going to see eye to eye with. Uh, and usually those things, you know, might be around disclosure items. Um, I've had clients, you know, in the past not want to disclose certain things, and I, I won't be a part of that. You know, it's part of the process is doing things by the book and having people who, who want to do things the right way. Well, ethics are an important part of it, and that's how you build your reputation. Exactly. Tell me about the MLS, the Multiple Listing Service, I think that's a, kind of a mystery to a lot of people. Sure. It's not something they really focus on when they work with real estate agents. Explain a little bit how that works and how the working with different agents, just sort of the summary of how that might work. Yeah, I think the MLS is still the most powerful tool that drives our industry uh, as far as marketing properties. Uh, but things have changed quite a bit. You've got the websites like Zillow and Trulia 
And they basically cover all the inventory that's on the MLS. They've got new features that, that include coming soon uh, or make me move. And, 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 the, and actually, the MLS has now got a coming soon feature itself. But the rules with that are you can advertise a property prior to it going on the MLS and prior to it accumulating market time, but you're not allowed to show it. Well, on Zillow, people privately and agents are posting their listings prior to going on the market. MLS is still the most powerful tool in the industry. It's the best way to open the floodgates and expose your your listing, uh, your properties to the most to the highest, uh, the largest audience. the uh, The other websites certainly create a lot of uh, activity. Uh, I have clients emailing me all day about stuff from these other these other private websites. They- are on the MLS or some are not? Both. Some some are. Okay. Some of the listings are. Uh, I would say more often than not, they are on the market. They're, they're finding, but you know, if they go into the make me move feature, they go into the coming soon, they might find stuff. Okay. Which are not on the MLS yet. Which are not on the MLS yet. Correct. And are those privately listed or, you know, and yeah. posted or are they? Are... So, so what I'll tell you, so I, I, one of the things I do with most sellers, if they're living in a desirable area is I may suggest that they they do a pre-list on their property. I know you do a lot of those. Yep. And I'm sure you've seen that on my Facebook page. Yes. That's probably the thing I use my Facebook page the most these days for is just to, to market pre-lists. Sure. The advantage to, to a pre-list um, is, and, and there are some disadvantages because you're not getting maximum exposure that you would on the uh, MLS, but you can market a property without accumulating market time. You can, uh, you're, you're marketing a property that, People have a human, you know, there's a human nature where people want to know about something that no one else knows about. Demand. Demand. So if they come, <laughs> and, they come and look at the property and, and they feel like no one else knows about it, there's an emotional attachment potentially to that property, especially if they like it. Getting maybe a better deal or exactly. getting what they want before somebody else jumps on exactly. it. Exactly. And, and, and preventing us as an agent to bring it to market and opening the floodgates. Sure. The, the, the positives of pre-listing to me are you're getting free feedback before you go to the market. Before you accumulate that market time, you're getting hopefully constructive feedback. Is um, does it help testing price as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, listen, I'll tell people generally if we're going to pre-list, we're going to go on at a higher price than we would actually go to the market with to because, test and see what your maximum you potentially can get. Exactly, and because if you you know here's the old you know John Smaby. I remember John Smaby pulling me in his office when we were talking about pre-listing and, and MLS listing years and years and years ago. Was let's say you had a Van Gogh painting in an auction hall. And you only allowed two people in, yet there's 100 people outside the auction hall that wanted to get in and bid on it. Where are you going to get your best price? And that was his logic about you put it on the MLS and you open the floodgates. I agree with that completely. But you're also risking the fact that if it, no one wants it, the market time accumulates and immediately your clients could be damaged by that. So to kind of put it out there, test it at a little bit of a higher price, buyers are generally a little bit more understanding the house isn't on the market, so it might not be in perfect shape. To actually getting people in for showings that are a little more flexible and understanding about that, you know, they're not going to necessarily see it when they want to see it. Because once a house is on the market, buyers have expectations. How much do you get involved in giving advice about upgrading properties internally, externally, you know, cosmetic or maybe much more so than that and how they can maximize not only the time it takes to sell, but justifying the price they could get for doing those sure. items? You know, I, I do that quite a bit, but I also rely on a couple a couple people. I have a stager who's got an interior design background. I feel a lot more comfortable having her answer those questions and paying her a fee myself 
to go in and, and not only tell my clients how to stage their house, you know, and, and then with staging, I'm not talking about bringing in furniture, how to kind of use and lose what they have in the house already. You know, I, I understand if there's an empty house because people moved yeah. already. Obviously, there's no furniture. It doesn't give you that comfort level. That's that's easy conversation in. to have with people yeah. if the house yeah. is empty. If the house isn't <laughs> empty and you want them to stage it, that's a little more uh, awkward, difficult, and, and, and uncomfortable it, conversation to it, have with and them. And then is it a co- combination between what they have, what they want to go put in storage, and maybe bringing other things in? Usually less is more, but I will tell you, you, you don't want an empty house because there's, there's a number of reasons you don't want an empty house. Number one, empty house screams that you have a desperate seller, <laughs> right? That's probably living somewhere else and paying a rent, paying rent or mortgage, or a mortgage somewhere else. So buyers immediately think they have an upper hand and they kind of go to this mindset uh, that we've got a desperate seller, which is not necessarily the case. Number two, when I walk into a house and it's empty, your eyes are going to be drawn to every flaw, every imperfection um, that's that exists, whether it be you know, on the walls, the floors, whatever. When a house is furnished, your eyes aren't drawn to those imperfections. Um, and then all, the other thing is, you know, a lot of people would think an empty room feels bigger than a, a furnished room, and that's just not true. Furnished, or you, generally, a furnished room is going to feel larger than an empty room because what's what's in there, right? You can see, picture the it. volume of exactly. And so, um, th- those are three reasons why. And, and listen, and the other, the, getting back to the awkward conversation, yeah, sometimes you have to tell your clients that their taste is not necessarily what's in right now, and that's that's a very tough conversation. Another reason why I usually bring my my, my stager in to have those conversations with them so I don't have to because I'm the one that's going to be in it with them for the long haul. As far as the um, staging goes, who typically pays for that? And approximately, I know it's all over the board, but like, what can somebody expect to pay for something like that? So I just had a, a 5,000 square foot plus house uh, staged, but it was really only staged on the main level. And the reason, you know, my clients were on a tight budget, uh, they just bought another big house. And we're moving into it, and their house was going to be was going to be vacant, and they didn't want to spend uh, the money up front on the staging. Now, one of the things I always offer my clients is I'm always willing to pay for any work they want to have done on their house if they sign a listing contract with me that says that they're going to pay me back and uh, reimburse me at closing. That I'll pay the, that I'll make those payments up front to lighten that, their load. And that's not common, is it? I, I think there's it's not common, but I think there's a, a number of established agents that uh, you know it'll make it's making my job easier. They allow me to do this if they take if they trust me to do this work, and you know, and I usually have them sign a contract saying for some reason the house doesn't sell that they're still going to reimburse me. Uh, but it's I'm trying to make my life easier and make their life easier. They've already got a lot of out of pocket expenses having a second house, and in, in most cases, uh, I'm just trying to, to lighten their load. But I will tell you, the staging process is generally paid for by the seller. In this case, we we just uh, stage the first floor because first impressions are everything, right? Once they right. get upstairs to the bedrooms. You can kind of imagine what a bed's going to look like, a, a double bed, a king-size bed, a queen-size bed, whatever, and kids' furniture, whatever you're, you're staging. That's the easy part for a, for a buyer to visualize. A living room, family room, some of those things are not as easy. Where you spend most of your time. Exactly. And you want somebody to walk in and go, wow. Right. And, that, and the, listen, people, they, they say the, in the first seven seconds someone walks into a house, they've already made their decision whether they're excited to go up to the second floor and see the bedrooms or they're thinking about the next house on their tour. So the first impressions go a long way. So that's where it's best to spend your money is on the main floor in that first impression area. Give me a range on prices. I mean, I mean, if somebody's it's an empty house, sure. Then, and just let's just say even a basic average price for a basic yep. staging for a average size so house. The stager I use, who I think is the most reasonable 
on a house that's probably 3,000 square feet to do most of the house, you're going to be about $3,500 to $4,000. But what they do is that number is good for 90 days, and then they charge 10% every month after that. Okay. So if it's if it's forty thousand if it's four thousand dollars for this house to do the whole house, uh, after ninety days it's four hundred bucks a month. Pretty reasonable. Where others will charge quite a bit more, and they do all the work. They do. They, they come in. They, they have a designer. In, they yep. set it up. Everything. For exactly. You. They okay. have. A des- they usually have someone come out take pictures first. They have a designer come out and then show up with a moving truck and and unload their unload their uh, the furniture and and basically give the house a whole makeover. Let Let me just ask you about photos. And videos of the home. How often is that done anymore? It's the most important part of our job, and it's the easiest part of our job. And it's still, I, I just, I just, you know, was uh, about to list a condo and doing my research, and, a, and a, a unit in the same building came on the market. And obviously, the agent had used his iPhone or or some kind of a camera, digital camera, to take these photos, and they were far from professional. And then I set up an appointment to go look at that unit, and I it was embarrassing for me, and I, I was pretty I was pretty candid with that agent and my feedback to him um, that he wasn't doing his clients any favors and he wasn't professionally marking the property, and I usually don't overstep my bounds that way, but he really was he was not only was he hurting his client though he's also hurting my client because my client's going to be listing in the building, sure. and they're not going to get the price that his his clients aren't going to get the price to help justify my client's price. Sure. So he's hurting all of us. And and that's the there's no excuse for an agent not to use professional photos in every single property they list. There's just no excuse for it. Now, where do those photos go? I mean, they probably I'm assuming they go on your website, but where else do they go? So they go on the MLS. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we have to upload them to the MLS, you know, and, and depending on like I've got a photo shoot tomorrow on an 850 square foot condominium, there's going to be probably 20 to 25 photos uh, of that unit. If it's a five, 6,000 square foot house, there could be 100 photos. What type of social media do you use and do sellers and buyers use and how effective is it nowadays? It's, it's, it's a big part of our business. You know, it's, it's something I've always, you know, when, when you asked me earlier about how I got my name out there and I said, you know, the subtle signature, I am, you know, I'm just not comfortable blasting people all the time about what I do. And, and there's, there's, there's a lot of agents that do that and, and good for them. I've, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just not something that's in my comfort zone. Uh, so I always like to do things a little more subtly on my Facebook page. I usually post pre-lists or buyer needs, things like that to show, get, to get remind word, people. Yeah. Get the word out to get friends and exactly. Else. Yeah. You know, I use my personal page for pre-lists because I've got a tremendous amount of followers, tremendously more followers on my personal page than my professional page because I haven't spent a lot of time on my professional page just because of the comfort level for me personally. Uh, other agents use their professional pages, you know, multiple times a day. I think it's fantastic. And it's it's done. I think it's really helped boost all their businesses, their business, I should say. Tell me about pricing. What's your method of figuring out maximum pricing, but at the same time be able to get the property sold in, a, in the correct amount sure. of time? And that's challenging because we all know that sellers usually think their house is worth a million dollars, whether it's worth 200000 or $800,000 or a million dollars. The first thing you do is you pull comps. You pull comparable sales in the area. That's the easiest uh, and, and best model. Uh, that's your competition. Through competition and what's sold. Pulling comparable sales is definitely the, 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 the best model and the oldest model uh, because that's what an appraiser is going to use. And so you've got to have comparable sales to back up the price you give them and to get them realistic about what their house is worth. 
What happens when you have a stubborn seller that says, I'm not going to sell for less than this? What, what I tell them is, we can do it your way, but I'm going to remind you daily, weekly, that this is your way. If it doesn't sell, that you're not doing things my way. And as long as you're open to me saying, I told you so, uh, we'll be fine. But at the end of the day, if I know that they're not going to drop their price at all and they're not flexible at, at some point, if they're told over and over and over again that the, the property isn't worth what they think it is. And, and listen, market value, market value is what someone's willing to pay for a property. So if someone's not willing, if you know if you're, you built your house for $2 million, but someone's not willing to pay a million dollars for it, guess what? It's not even worth a million dollars because market value is what someone's willing to pay for it. On the second half of that, it's what an appraiser is willing to appraise it for. Um, but, but I've had sellers that have said, no, I won't come off this no matter what. And I've just said, then I'm going to pass. What's the situ- What's the status of working with first-time buyers right now? They're my favorite. I love working with first-time home buyers. And most agents my age or been in the business 20 years aren't going to feel the same because the, the financial reward at the end of the day is not going to be, be as large. And because it's a first time for them, everything, everything you do is exciting. So I love that. At the same time, you know, I've got a, a, a full-time licensed assistant who works with a lot of my buyers. So she takes on most of that load. I always get involved with she, when she shows houses, whether she shows them two houses or 20 or 30 or 40 houses, if, if they write an offer, I always will go to the inspection or always go to the house, the house, the property before they write the offer, just to give my stamp of approval, just because she's not as experienced. She, I mean, she's fantastic, but she's just not as experienced as far as construction quality, you know, deferred maintenance items that might come up. Um, and she's learning, and she's learning fast. But I, I love that part of the process. What's the marketplace right now for properties um, at different price mm-hmm. levels? It's for the first timers, which are generally you know two hundred to three hundred and below. It's tough. The, the competition is uh, as fierce as it's ever been. There's definitely a supply and demand issue. The younger first time buyers, younger generation let's say 20s, in their 20s, maybe early 30s even, waiting longer to buy, A, because it's less affordable, and maybe because they like more flexibility. One of the things we've seen is that there's a lot, you know, we see these huge apartment buildings going up everywhere, and they've got tremendous amenities, and they're beautiful. Uh, Some of them are mixed-use buildings where they've got restaurants or, you know, retail on the main level. And why we're seeing that, uh, from my understanding, is that you know, the, when someone develops a building like that, a multi-family uh, unit like that, whether it's a condo or an apartment, the, the warranties on those uh, on those uh, buildings are different. If you build something that's going to be owner-occupied, it's a 10-year warranty. So for structural issues or windows, things like that, so the developers were getting sued uh, a lot more frequently than people that are building apartments because it's a two-year warranty on the apartment. So if you're building rentals, if you're the developer in two years, you're off the hook. If you're building condos, you've got 10 years before you're off the hook, and obviously a lot more can go wrong in, in 10 years and two years. Because there's all these really kind of glamorous rental options out there that are somewhat more affordable, uh, that's one of the reasons you're seeing younger people rent right now. I also think the younger generation is a little more conservative financially uh, with their money. I think they've, they've seen their parents go through some some things, you know, year, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and uh, they've kind of learned from that, and they're, they're pretty wise. I will tell you that the, the other thing is, Two words I hear as often as anything these days is downsize and simplify. So these these big, massive houses people were building, uh, I think people have learned from what happened, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, is people are trying to simplify their lives and downsize. I think these kids are teaching us a lot. 
tell me a little bit about how somebody can get a hold of you and, you know, kind of what you'd be willing to do for somebody. Sure. So we, like I said, we love working with, we just love working with good people. My assistant is uh, licensed now for about seven months or so, but been with me for a year. Uh, changed my life. Best thing that ever happened to me. And she is, uh, she loves working with people as much as I do. And she has the same values and ethics that I do, fortunately. And we just, we just like working with good people and holding their hand through the process and making it as seamless as possible. Uh, we can be reached at, uh, my, my email address is jedinger at edinareally.com. My cell phone number is 612-990-7777. Uh, and I'm on that 24-7, whether you call or text. So I'll be happy to help you or answer anything else. We, we love just giving people uh, advice and just helping them uh, answer questions. So I mean, I'd say half the calls I get aren't even from potential clients, just people asking me for their advice uh, because they know someone I know and someone told them I'd help them out. And so I love doing that. And I know that's how you operate yeah. personally. And yeah. I know you appreciate and sort of the, yeah. the people that call you appreciate it. Well, the, the person I'm looking across the table from is, is cut from the same cloth. So I appreciate <laughs> it. You just helped out a client of mine the other day. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. No, it's my pleasure to do that. Appreciate you coming here today. Thanks okay. for having me, Barry. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. And if you enjoyed the episode, hit subscribe on whatever platform you're on. This has been the Barry Law Legal Podcast. Tune in again as Barry interviews lawyers, real estate agents, lenders, and other professionals that bring popular legal-related topics into focus for his listeners. Barry Rosenzweig can be reached at 952-920-1001 in Minnesota and 480-227-2203 in Arizona. He can also be reached by email at barry at barrylaw.com or online at www.barrylaw.com.